This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Saturday, everybody. Uh, At least in theory, summer is here for most of our listeners. So this seems like the perfect time to talk about something cold and delicious. That means ice cream. In today's episode, which is from back in 2013, we reference the mythology of George Washington's wooden teeth, which a number of folks wrote in afterward to correct. So yes, we're aware that George Washington's false teeth were not really made of wood, which is why we framed it as mythology. They were made of things like lead, ivory, and real human teeth, uh, probably including some of his own teeth that he had saved when they were extracted and possibly teeth that he purchased from people who were enslaved at Mount Vernon. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, and I have the following question to pose. Oh? Who doesn't like ice cream? Uh, I can think of a lot of people who don't like ice cream. Really? Yeah, people who are lactose intolerant well, don't like ice cream. But it might not be that they don't like it. It's just something they've had to eliminate when, for uh, health reasons. When I was in massage school, our traditional Chinese medicine teacher told us that in traditional Chinese medicine, ice cream is a terrible food to eat because it's very cold and it has lots of sugar and milk and all of those things together. From that perspective, is that a bad combo? I'm almost suspicious of people that don't like ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> I can. I really can only think of one or two people that I've ever met. Uh, one is the brother of a friend, and he has many suspicious dislikes in the food arena. Like, he also doesn't like cheesecake, so come on. We mm. can't trust that person. Um but I love it, and most people I know love it. I do like ice cream. Did you know that 1.6 billion gallons of ice cream are produced in the U.S. annually? That is a lot of ice cream. Um, and as we know, you know, the serving size on a pint of ice cream that's listed has been comedian fodder for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. I will say before we get deep into this podcast, because we're talking today, obviously, about the history of ice cream, um, that a lot of it after a certain point kind of centers on the U.S. While I know that people eat ice cream the world over, I think we're kind of considered 
the nexus point. I don't. I, I think it's kind going, of gotten lumped in with Americana. Like you have your slice of apple pie and there's ice cream on the side. Yeah, you know, pie a la mode. Well, and I definitely there are a lot of cultural ice cream things. Like you know, I grew up in in the Bible Belt. And, yeah, and the church ice cream social. Was, yeah. Uh, an annual thing that everybody looked forward to for a really long time. Uh, and then you have the whole preponderance of ice cream parlors that we will talk about later. Yeah. And how that sort of became a place for people to go and hang out. Like ice cream became a really social thing in the United States and not just like a food to eat for dessert. Yeah, it's really, it's an iconic food, I think, in in the U.S. for sure. Uh which is kind of fascinating. I'm I'm now wondering if we have a national dessert and if ice cream is it. But I don't know. Uh, do you have a favorite flavor? Oh, I will eat chocolate ice cream, of course, all day. Yeah. <laughs> See? Work. I don't love chocolate. My mother-in-law really loves chocolate ice cream. And I think she's suspicious of me that I'm like, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I had my wisdom teeth removed, my dad, like, woke me up in the parking lot of the grocery store while I was, you know, still kind of <laughs> under some anesthesia still. <laughs> He's like, what kind of ice cream do you want? And I was like, chocolate. <laughs> That's so pathetic. It was very pathetic. Uh, I also feel like I should give a quick shout out to one of my favorite ice cream places in the world, uh-huh. which is in Canada. It's outside Vancouver. I think it's technically in Burnaby called Casa Gelato. And they have hundreds of flavors of ice cream and they do really wild. That is where I had um, durian ice cream, which I have to keep on a, a lid on it. And they keep it far away from all the other ice creams because it makes everything smell so bad. Right. But it's delicious. And that's where I had pear and gorgonzola ice cream for the first time. And they do dandelion lion ice cream almost any flavor i think they've tried to do yeah and i love that place like um i just to me it was like going into the factory of dreams at that point (laughs) yeah what i can eat all of these things oh my goodness when i was a kid there was a an ice cream place at the beach that we went to every summer and my brother and my cousin and i would all get these uh it it was Bubble gum, bubble gum flavored ice cream that had little pieces of I gum in it. I love that stuff. It's like cloyingly sweet. Right. And I love it. And a terrible color. Like not a color that's found in nature. <laughs> but delicious. Yeah. Well, and all these things that I associate with ice cream, a lot of them are things that are done as a family or in a group or... Yeah. You know, it not, is a very social food. Unless you're eating it by yourself straight from the carton in front of the television, which I also do. Oh, Yeah. For sure. I've definitely done that. Uh, But this all makes us wonder, where did ice cream come from in the first place? Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is actually a pretty unresolved question. There are many different theories. Um, There's a lot of disagreement about the actual origin point of ice cream. And some of that problem lies in semantics. Some food historians will qualify ice cream by a certain set of criteria, and those may not be the same criteria or definition that another foodie will use. And some people, for example, separate ice desserts out by the inclusion or exclusion of dairy, but even then the origins are hazy. Um, There's a USDA standard that's current that says for a food to qualify as ice cream, it needs to contain uh, at least 10% milk fat, a minimum of 6% non-fat milk solids, and a gallon has to weigh at least 4.5 pounds. But that's not really um, applicable to the historical record because those were not in place and we're still trying to trace the origins. So there are many different and interesting stories that have circulated, and we won't even cover all of them, but we will do a list, um, about the origins of ice cream. 
So one of the earliest is a biblical mention. There's a reference to King Solomon having iced drinks during harvest time, which sounds like a wonderful idea. Um, But it also doesn't sound that much like ice cream. Uh, but that's mentioned in the in various accounts of ice cream history as sort of a proto-ice cream treat. And Alexander the Great is said to have enjoyed snow and ice that were flavored with honey or nectar, which sounds more like a snow cone, but still is sometimes bandied about as a potential origin point. I think it sounds like snow cream, which we talked about in our prior podcast, yeah. Pop Stuff, and people were horrified <laughs> <laughs> that people would do that. Uh, In the first century CE, Roman Emperor Nero is said to have uh, gotten his slaves to bring him snow from the mountains so that it could be combined with fruit. Again, similar to the Alexander the Great thing. Uh, And then Marco Polo allegedly brought back a recipe for a frozen dessert from his travels in Asia when he returned to Italy. Uh, And it's believed that this more closely resembled a sherbet than an ice cream. Uh, And some people say that it's the genesis point for ice cream and gelato uh, and similar frozen treats developing in Italy. In the mid-1500s, it's possible that Catherine de' Medici introduced some kind of ice cream to France when she married Henry II. Yeah, that she carried it over. So those are all different. Uh, I have read different accounts that point to each one of those things as this is where ice cream started. But uh, and they all may or may not have truth to them. They're all, like I said, pointed out in various discussions of ice cream as like, this is where ice cream really got its start. There's so much variation, and many of them don't involve dairy, so a lot of people will discount them, um, or some people will support them, depending on their beliefs and definitions. Um, And also, I think that in some cases, a little bit of, like, cultural pride comes into it. Mm -hmm. There are people in France that will say it came from France, people from Italy that will say it came from Italy, people from China that will say it came from China, where we're about to discuss, because that often gets... uh, believed in. But the truth really is probably that uh, there were many people wanting a delightful, tasty, cool treat, particularly in hot weather. And so I think a lot of different techniques and cultural desires kind of went into the ice cream that we eat today and how it developed. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. The most favored origin story for ice cream is that it comes from China. So there are some references to a milk and rice mixture packed into snow for freezing as early as 200 BCE. Then during China's Tang period from 618 to 907, it's believed that a version of ice cream was popular with the nation's rulers. And they actually had dedicated ice men. These the men, their entire job was to keep the palace supplied with ice. And they would bring that ice from the mountains, and then it would be combined with a fermented milk, which is called kumis, uh, and camphor and flour. And the dairy element could be sourced from a number of different animals. It could be um, cow milk, goat milk, or buffalo milk. And the camphor was used to enhance the texture and flavor. But that makes me have question marks in my head and my stomach, because I've it seems like it would taste like mothballs. Right. Well, and I also wonder, um, as we talked about in our uh, episode on the history of cheese, how uh, a lot of adults can't tolerate lactose uh, because they haven't been, their their digestive systems haven't been gradually accustomed to it. Right. So, uh, in, in Chinese cultures and a lot of Asian cultures, lactose intolerance is a lot more prevalent. So yeah, milk I, is not a big ingredient in a lot of Asian cooking. Yeah. So I kind of wonder whether either the fermenting process took down the amount of lactose, which probably... Yeah. Actually, I think no. I think yeast used in brewing and fermenting does not eat lactose. I'm super curious about this now. Me too. It's fascinating to think about. And I was surprised that it is the most favored story since we don't associate... Asia and China specifically with a lot of dairy consumption. So right. That was kind of interesting. Uh, and it could be that it was so rare that that was part of why it became a yummy palatial, like, special treat. Right. That it w- there was some level of um, um, exclusivity to it that made it appealing. For all we know, it totally upset their stomach. I was going to say, <laughs> a special treat that made you feel ill afterwards. <laughs> but once all of these ingredients were combined, they would pack the mixture into these metal tubes and then submerge them in an ice pool for freezing, which is kind of cool to think about. Uh, I wonder if anybody does that style of ice cream making today. I would try it for sure, even mm-hmm. if it does taste like mothballs. I don't know if I would try camphor ice cream. <laughs> I would try it. I'll, I'm adventurous. I'll, well, I'll try almost anything. Yeah, I, Somehow I would be more inclined to eat bugs than camphor ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but then there is a, a lot of things that happen having to do with um, 
the area of Turkey and Arab cultures and how that kind of slowly gets ice cream and frozen treats into Europe, Europe and the European countries. And then it kind of takes a lot of big steps towards being the dessert that we know today. Arab peoples are said to have drunk an iced, slushy-like, sherbet-style drink in medieval times. Uh, this was normally fruit-flavored, and apparently it spread to several European cultures because it was so refreshing and tasty. Yeah, the travelers that would travel around the Mediterranean and do trades with other countries kind of picked up this habit of drinking it, brought it right back home with them. And one of the supporting elements for the belief that ice cream, true, you know, true ice cream, I'm making the air quotes, uh, originated in Italy comes from their knowledge of chilling various beverages in the mid to late 1500s using a slurry of saltpeter and snow to like submerge things and quickly almost flash freeze them. And we know this was used for wine uh, to cool it down, but it's believed that this process may have also been applied to chilling these slushy sherbets that they had discovered and picked up as a habit when they were traveling. Uh, and they were sometimes called Turkish sorbets. And the word sorbet is one that in different European cultures, as this history goes on, it really gets traded around in ways that are not consistent different things were being called sorbet that we would define differently, I think, today. So that's a tricky one if you're reading any of the the um, passages or sources we list in the show notes. Just know that sorbet is a word that gets kind of tossed around without consistency. Yeah. Well, and if you've, if you've ever seen, you know, an old-fashioned ice cream maker do its thing, you can sort of see a seed of that process yeah. and this whole idea of using a slurry of saltpeter and snow to cool stuff down. Yeah. So they were onto it early. Sorbet, as we know it, was invented when these icy drinks uh, were made into hard frozen treats that incorporated sugar. The man who gets the credit for this is Antonio Latini, who was working as a steward to the chief minister of the Spanish Viceroy in Naples in the late 1600s. He further experimented and added dairy to the mix. In Latini's book, Scalco alla Moderna, which means carver to the modern, he included recipes for lemon, strawberry, sour cherry, chocolate, and cinnamon ice, and a milk ice that's often cited as the first true ice cream recipe. I would eat any of those. They sound very interesting. Um, cinnamon ice sounded really interesting to me, mostly because my husband really loves cinnamon. And in 1686, a cafe in Paris opened. Uh, sometimes it's called Il Procope, sometimes... Le Procope, sometimes Café Procope. Uh, but its proprietor was actually Sicilian. Uh, it was a man named Francesco Procopio de Coltelli. Uh, and it offered a variety of ice treats. And some historians credit him with bringing gelato to France, but others say his café only offered very cold beverages. So there's some discrepancy about what was really on the menu and whether he was importing ice cream to France. Um, but what's really interesting is that that cafe is still open today, so you can go visit it. That's awesome. It really has the established 1686 sign above it, uh, and you can go. Let's go now. All right. Get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> the French had already been experimenting with ice cream-like treats, specifically a concoction called fromage, which is very similar to ice cream. This was not made with cheese, even though it has the same word as cheese. It's not completely clear why the two words share the same name, but it's possible that the frozen dairy dessert was chilled in cheese molds. As fromage developed and started to be referred to as neige, which is the French word for snow, 
and then gloss, which is what it's now called today, it became incredibly popular throughout the country. And in 1692, which was the same year Latini's cookbook for Isis came out, a French cookbook for similar desserts entitled La Maison Reglée, which is a well-ordered home, was written by Nicolas Odige, and it was touted as being, quote, the true method for making all sorts of water essences and liqueurs, strong and refreshing, in the Italian style. Odege's book was much clearer in its recipes and instructions, and it spelled out exactly how to make creme glacée, which is frozen cream. The use of a bucket inside of another bucket with the gap between the two filled with ice and salt is described, as well as the method for stirring the mixture in the interior bucket as it freezes until it has the consistency of snow. Which is really how ice cream still gets made. Yep. <laughs> Unless uh, you're making it in a funky science experiment, which is yeah, also fun. Or if you're in a factory. But when people have their home machines, that's it's really the same deal going on. Um, and Audigé's book you can actually read online if you are fluent in French. We will have that link in the show notes. Uh, my French is not good enough to follow a recipe of that nature. It's kind of mediocre. Uh, but then sort of an interesting thing happened, and this is sort of the point where it becomes a very American treat. Uh, so while ice cream existed in Europe for many years prior, and the recipes and the love of the treat traveled across the Atlantic with the colonists in the 1740s, there is also this kind of wacky mythological tale that attributes the invention of ice cream to Martha Washington, uh, the story claims that she left a bowl of sweet cream outdoors overnight and accidentally stumbled upon the creation when she discovered the forgotten dish, which had frozen, the next morning. And, of course, this is completely untrue. We have instances of ice cream going on way before that. And there's actually uh, the first account of ice cream in America is in a letter from 1744, which was written by a guest of William Bladen, who was the governor of Maryland. Um, and this guest was writing of the time that he visited with the politician and what was served while he was there. And ice cream was one of the things. So, so even though Martha Washington did not invent ice cream, George Washington did Love it. <laughs> like, that's an understatement, I think. He really super loved it. Yeah. In the 1784 ledger for Mount Vernon, there's a record of an ice cream machine being acquired for the sum of one pound, 13 shillings, and three pence. And even with his own ice cream churns at home, in 1790, George Washington is said to have spent $200 over the course of one summer uh, on ice cream at a local shop, which uh, is apparently close to $100,000 of today's money. This may have contributed to the wooden teeth mythology. <laughs> well, and it's funny, when I uh, was talking to my husband about this, because I was blathering on about how interesting I found it, he wondered if it wasn't because he had the wooden teeth, ice cream was a yummy thing he could easily eat because it would melt in his mouth. Ah, I think everyone had, I mean, definitely everyone had terrible teeth at the time. Yeah. But, but George Washington's terrible teeth are, um, in, are infamous. Yes. 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. 
In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits. Just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, The Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of The 27 Club. Season one of The 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of The 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Shortly after Washington's death, an inventory of Mount Vernon was made, and numerous ice cream supplies turn up in that inventory. There were two pewter ice cream pots, as well as numerous special ice cream serving dishes. Ice cream was a favored treat for both the the company who would, you know, arrive and stay there and for the family and residents. Yeah, when they had state dinners, you were pretty much going to get ice cream as dessert. Uh, it was really like, I, I can't stress enough how much George Washington loved it. But he was not the only person. Thomas Jefferson had his own recipe for vanilla that he had handwritten out, and he served it with Savoy cookies. And you can actually see that handwritten recipe online. It's uh, part of the American Treasures of the Library. Congress, and we'll link to that in our show notes. And he is, uh, Jefferson is said to have maintained multiple ice houses so that he could constantly be storing ice for making more ice cream, as well as storing his ice cream once it had been made. Like he was just stockpiling ice cream supplies and ice cream. I'm also in favor of <laughs> a giant ice cream stockpile. The Lincolns were also big fans. Mary Todd Lincoln would frequently host strawberry parties, which were get-togethers centered around dessert service. And co-starring with the with the strawberries was ice cream. Yeah, so uh, ice cream has a very favored history with American presidents, and even more modern presidents have definitely sung the praises of ice cream. And we all love it. It's good. I'm telling you. Uh, and perhaps because of the popularity with the early um, political leaders, ice cream was enthusiastically embraced in the U.S. But up until the early 1800s, it was kind of a fancy pants dessert for wealthy people and high society types. Yeah, if average people cannot afford <laughs> to, to keep things cold yeah. and, uh, and to get all the ice and the sugar and everything else that are needed to make it, then it, it does make it a very exclusive food. Yeah, so then when you think of people maintaining multiple ice houses yeah. to keep their stockpile, Man. that's not something most people would have had access to. No. But the insulated ice house was invented around the turn of the century, so that meant that more people could have ice cream on hand, uh, whereas prior to that, only wealthy people could really maintain an ice house because they would have to have constant ice coming in and constant management of the situation and the temperature. Yeah, it really it reminds me of the possibly apocryphal story about why sweet tea is so popular in the South. It had to do with if you could afford the sugar and the ice needed to make sweet tea. Yeah. You're doing all right. Yeah. It's a little bit of a calling card of your aristocracy. Yes. Would you like to come over and have sweet tea? On my porch. I have the money for that. On the veranda? Uh-huh. <laughs> In the early 1840s, New Jersey housewife Nancy Johnson made ice cream in the normal way in a metal bucket packed with ice and salt. It was great, but this was really, as we've talked about it, time-consuming, and it's hard to keep things consistent when you're having to stir them constantly. Yeah. So she invented the hand-cranked ice cream churn, and her new artificial freezer was patented on September 9, 1843, 
And the basic design continues to be popular now with pretty minimal changes. Yeah. Uh, ice cream churns that you buy now are so similar to that original one. Obviously, the components are made of more modern materials, but... Yeah. The, and you, you the plug them into the wall, generally. the same. But you can also still buy hand cranks. You can. They're, you take a little more work. You earn that ice cream, which is probably good. But, um, yeah, it's, it's retained its function, and it's continued to be about... That same thing that the Italians were doing with ice and salt mixed together surrounding this thing, mm-hmm. surrounding the um, the dairy uh, bucket so they could kind of quickly freeze it. So little change. Don't mess with perfection. Uh, the first commercial ice cream factory was opened in 1850 by Jacob Fussell, and he was a dairyman from Baltimore, and he wanted to make use of the surplus cream that his dairy was producing, which, you know, once they had cleared that off, they had to use it very quickly. So it went into making ice cream. And so ice cream at that point, you know, transitioned and became not just a homemade treat that you would be using your hand crank for, but an actual industry, which, as we know, has flourished Yes, 1874 saw the first ice cream soda shop in the United States, as well as the origin of the soda jerk. So the late Victorian and Edwardian eras saw a real explosion in ice cream popularity. By the 19-teens, all of America was covered in ice cream shops. And another thing that may have contributed to ice cream sort of being so associated with the U.S. is that during World War II, ice cream was like a huge part of the morale efforts of the U.S. armed forces. Like it was literally listed as a line item in their morale budget, like that they had to have rations of ice cream for the soldiers. The military served ice cream to the troops and they even established, this blows my mind in the most wonderful way, a floating ice cream parlor in the Western Pacific that would serve the soldiers. So it was like a floating treat factory. It was on a barge and it had to be towed by other ships. It wasn't self-powered, but its only job was to produce ice cream for soldiers, uh, which is really fascinating and interesting. Uh, And it was quite expensive, apparently. And when the war concluded, ice cream was a huge part of the festivities. From the end of the war through the 1970s, prepackaged ice cream started to grow as something that you could buy at the supermarket. And it supplanted most of the quaint ice cream shops that had become popular in the early 1900s. Yeah, and of course, that sort of started this big shift that we've witnessed in the last couple decades where some people would say the quality goes down when you're getting um, ice cream at the supermarket. But then there has also been this sort of growth of the boutique industry of these smaller ice cream shops again that are kind of more specialized. There are artisan ice creams now. I visited two of such shops over (laughs) 4th of July weekend when it was extremely hot in Boston. Yeah. Oh, a good fresh ice cream, like a homemade ice cream Mm -hmm. is good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and we have these specialty shops all over the U.S. now and in other countries as well. But, of course, we owe all of these yummy treats we're enjoying with all of our mix-ins to China or Nero or Marco Polo or King Solomon, depending on whose version of the story you uh, believe and which definition you adhere to in terms of historical context. Yes. Oh, ice cream. Mm -hmm. I love it. I I was just immensely relieved the time this particular like I can understand how it became a popular thing to serve ice cream during the harvest or to people who were traveling in hot weather mm-hmm. um, just because of having walked to a place in the 90 degree heat and then walked back uh-huh 
while drinking a frozen drink. <laughs> and man, was it a different experience. The trip back was so much better than the trip out. And I, the whole, uh, all I had been able to think was, it's so hot, it's so hot. And then on the way back, I was like, I'm drinking delicious. This yeah. was a, this was a, a, like a sorbet that was. Yeah, a frozen treat. It's shocking how effective they are at yeah. just kind of cooling you down and making you feel good on a day that is sweltering. We, um, anybody that runs knows probably about the Peachtree Road Race, which is a huge race here in Atlanta on the 4th of July. It's like up to 60,000 runners now, so it's quite mammoth. Uh, and after you finish, you kind of have to go through this cattle chute setup where they march everybody up this one street to get back to public transportation. And smartly, a few years ago, we have a local um, ice cream popsicle. It's not all ice cream, but a popsicle vendor called King of Pops. And they had the very smart business idea to start setting up rolling carts along that route. Mm -hmm. Because you can't go off of that route. Like, they kind of keep you cordoned in and police block off other streets. So you can't kind of verge out and have a mass. So it's just like all these people marching by. And it's so hard to resist. You just pull out your money or your credit card and you're like, yes, please give me the pops. <laughs> and it makes it so much better than if you were just walking without them. Yeah. We were walking to Fenway Park on the 4th where people ate lots of ice cream to keep cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about the Peachtree Road Race and how it must have been miserable. Yeah, I did not run it this year. I usually do, but I opted not to this year. Um, partially because I thought about that horrible march back to public transportation and I dislike it so much that I was like, eh, it's, let somebody else have the entry. There's like a whole lottery system to even get into the race anymore because it's gotten so big. Uh, and apparently there was so much rain this year that the park that you kind of have to travel through to get done, get your stuff, and then leave was covered in mud, so I was glad I missed it. Oh. But kudos to everybody that ran it, because it was sweltery and muggy. Mm -hmm. I ran, just not there. <laughs> but I did not have ice cream afterwards, so that's my punishment, I guess. No, and I did not have ice cream at Fenway Park, just because when the ice cream was coming by, it was late enough in the game that we were starting to think about when you were going to leave. Yes. Yeah. At which point I did get a frozen coffee drink. Yum! Also delicious. Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcasts at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.